Matthew chapter 16, um, verse 18, we're talking about the church. And this passage, for many of you, is very familiar. Um, Jesus is talking, and he says, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever shall, thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay? So what, do we, what can we learn from these couple of verses? What can we extract from very simple yet um, packed fr- uh, things that Peter's tell- or Jesus is telling Peter? Well, one of the things that we can pull from it is the, the, what he says of, I will build my church, right? The church was not yet in existence in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus had not yet built his church. He was preparing the world and his disciples for, for, the, for the building of the church, but he says, I will build my church, speaking to a future time, not past or present, a future time. So he says, I will build my church. And so we talk about coming into the church, being born again, right? Um, we looked at, we talked a little bit about um, seeing the kingdom last week, right? And how in John 3, he says, you can't see the kingdom. You can't even see it until you're born again. You can't enter into the kingdom unless you're born again. And so you can't get into the church unless you're born again. You can't enter into in being part of his body until you are renewed and born again. And so that had not happened yet. That was not available yet. And we're going to prove that. But the Holy Ghost was not available. The new birth experience was not available yet because Jesus was still here on the earth in physical human form. It wasn't until he was ascended and was glorified that that was made available. How do I know that? Let's look at John chapter 7. I mentioned it briefly. John chapter 7, verse 37 through verse 39. The Bible says, In the last day... That great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. I'm going to pause right there, and I want, I want to kind of point out the beginning of that verse. He says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said. Not just he that believes on me, whatever you define the word believing to mean. There is a biblical definition of that word believe, right? And, and the danger that you see today with, with false doctrine and, and teachings, even by Christians, is that the right terms are used and the right scriptures are quoted, but their definitions of what those words actually mean are not what the Bible means them to mean. They use terms like love and faith and believing and all of these things, but what they really mean by it is not the biblical definition of those words. And believing is one of those words that you'll hear a lot. Well, I believe. Awesome. Prove it. Well, I don't have to. Yes, you do. The Bible says you do. No, I don't. I just believe because I say I believe. It's not good enough. You may think it's good enough, and the world may say that's good enough. Or Christi- even some Christianity might say that's good enough, but that's not good enough for God. Believing leads us to actions. You only know someone's beliefs by their actions. You cannot prove it otherwise. You don't know their heart. 
And they can use that as an excuse. Well, you don't know my heart. Awesome. God does. And he said, show me your belief by your, by your actions. Show me your faith by your works. And so, a little sidebar there, but you've got you to be aware of the terminology that's used because the right things are said, but if you really drill in with some people, what their definitions of those words are not the same as you and I. So, in, in reality, we don't believe the same things if your definition of belief is just mental assent, and I, I say it, and therefore it is. Sorry, that's not good enough. And I have Bible to back that up. Anyways, here we go. So, verse 38, he says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And here's John's kind of commentary input here. He says, But this spake he, John's saying, this, Jesus is speaking of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. If you look in your Bible, that word given is actually in italics. If you know anything about, about what that means, it means it was added for context or for the translators put that in there to help us. In some cases, it actually hurts us. But if you take out that word, well, how it really should read is, for the Holy Ghost was not yet. It was not there yet. It was not available yet because that Jesus was not yet glorified. It wasn't available yet. And John is, is, remember, John. the purpose of John's gospel is very, it's very revelatory, it's very doctrinal, it's very, it's very thick of, or full of doctrinal um, revelations. And, and what, he's writing this after the fact, and he's putting, inserting here, when Jesus was saying that, he was talking, he wasn't talking about literal rivers of living water, he was talking about the Spirit that will come. And what he meant, he was saying it in future tense, because the Holy Ghost had not yet come because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so it's a doctrinal statement that John's putting in here telling us what he meant by that. And we have to, we have to understand that understand that truth. And we, we talked last week, we referenced the verses, Jesus says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. It's in that same passage he's talking about the comforter who will come and shouldn't lead you into all truth. He says, I will come to you. And so you have to understand that moment at which this shifted was Jesus' ascension and glorification so that now a new beginning of the Holy Ghost coming down could happen. It could, it could, the timing was right. And so the Holy Ghost was not yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. That was coming. The church, we're talking about the church, the church being established. The second thing we can point out from this um, is that We can look at Jesus. If you look at these verses and you look at Scripture, Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation. Peter is part of that foundation, but the church is not built on Peter. Peter was used in giving keys, but he is not the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. And if you look at Ephesians, we actually start, it talks about, this, this uh, talks about this. So if we look at Ephesians 2, verse, I'm going to start with verse 19 and read through verse uh, 21. Ephesians 2, 19 says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, 
and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. So the apostles and the prophets are part of the foundation of the church. They're part of the foundation of our beliefs. What they taught, what they said, what they did, it's part of our foundation. We should know it. We should understand it. We should learn of it. We, we need to know that. But you can't, you can't understand what they taught without understanding what Jesus taught and who Jesus was. It all starts and comes back to Jesus. And I'm not a builder, but I can read commentary. So uh, there's an amazing point that the Bible knowledge commentary pulls out on this, this, uh, this verse, Ephesians 2.20 talking about Jesus being the chief cornerstone. He says, Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. That is, he is part of the foundation. In ancient building practices, the chief cornerstone was carefully placed. It was crucial because the entire building was lined up with it. The church's foundation, that is, the apostles and prophets, need to be correctly aligned with Christ. All other believers are built on that foundation Measuring their lives with Christ. So, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And the, everything else that is built from, that, from him out of the foundation or upwards in the church has to be perfectly aligned with him, the chief cornerstone. It can't be out of place. It can't be out of line. What the apostles taught has to be perfectly in line with Jesus because he is the chief cornerstone. What the prophets taught has to be perfectly in line with Jesus. What we teach has to be perfectly in line with Jesus or we're not part of the building. We're not part of his church. If what we are teaching does not perfectly align with what he taught, you're not. Everything must be aligned with Christ. And so everything that the apostles taught was perfectly in line with what Jesus taught as the chief cornerstone of our foundation. Isn't that awesome? It's, so, it's amazing. And so anything that you come across, any teaching, any doctrine that does not perfectly align with what Jesus and the apostles and the prophets taught, you don't have to listen to it. It's not part of the, the building, the household of God. And we are built on that. We are built upon that. So we can't disregard our foundation. We are built on those teachings. And thirdly, we can note from these verses that Peter was given keys to the kingdom of heaven. And I thought this was interesting. Um, We've heard a lot, I've heard a lot of of teaching about keys in the context of binding and loosing. And that's very much a part of what we do in prayer. Um, But if you read your book, the author points out something that I think is interesting. Um, Makes a lot of sense. He says, keys are used to open doors. Whoa. Let that sink in for just a second. Keys are used to open doors. Yeah. Might be the most revelatory thing you hear tonight. That's Keys are used to open doors. So Jesus gave Peter the authority to open the door of salvation to the Jews first on the day of Pentecost and afterward to the Samaritans and the Gentiles. God used Peter to preach and unlock things in the Spirit that then others would follow what he unlocked um, 
by the Spirit through his preaching and teaching. Uh, and, but God used him as the, as the one to unlock that door that had been, had been closed. He was given keys. Keys are used to unlock doors. And so when you read in the day of Pentecost, when you read about um, Peter's interaction with the Samaritans and the Gentiles, he was, it was new. It was something new that was happening when he was pre- preaching and praying for them and they received the Holy Ghost. It was something brand new for them. Um, and so God used, God gave Peter the keys. And how awesome is that as a story of, of redemption and restoration, thinking about what happened to Peter not very long before um, the day of Pentecost. You know, his, his worst moments, his, his lowest moments, he got through them. He, he didn't respond like Judas did, right? We talked about Judas. Judas, he realized what he had done, and he, he, had, he didn't have godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to death. So Judas's sorrow led to his death. Peter's sorrow led to his restoration and place back in the kingdom of God. And so God is in the business of restoration. He is in the business of restoration. And Peter's story is an example of how powerful God's restoration really is. He goes from this person who denies the very knowledge of Jesus to the one giving keys to unlock this new covenant to the world. Right? The Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. That's the world. He unlocked it. So, all of that, we haven't even gotten to Acts chapter 2 yet. But now, here we are. We're there. So, we are, we've gotten to this point where the Jesus' followers were given a promise. It, they, were, they read the prophecies. Jesus said, go. The promise of the Spirit's coming. Go wait in Jerusalem. For it, to, for it to come to pass. The time is almost here. And so they did. And so they, they, they go and they wait and they pray and they're, and they're obeying, right? They believed, we'll come back to belief, they believed what Jesus said was going to happen, so therefore they responded and they go and went and they did what he said to do. And look what happened. It came true. Had they not believed him, had they not been there, who knows what it would have happened. It would, the, especially, I mean, the 380 plus that didn't show up, they didn't, they weren't part of that initial outpouring because they weren't there. And so we see this group of people um, waiting and, and believing God and responding to what he said and his instruction. And so they're there when this happens. They're there when the moment comes. So Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, God probably quote this, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Such a beautiful passage, and it's it's an amazing um, parallel to something we'll talk about in just a minute. But I, I can't even, I try to every once in a while picture myself in that place, you know, and like that happening and not just what, what I would have thought, what I would have said, what I would have felt like. I don't know. I, I, I remember when I got the Holy Ghost and it was, for me, it was not a very dramatic experience. I remember it. It was, it was very quiet, very reserved, and it was not a very dramatic. So I didn't have that boom conversion, fall on the, f- the floor, fire falling, Holy Ghost initially. I've had it since then, trust me. 
but my initial experience was not anything dramatic. Um, and so part of me is like, man, I really wish, I, I kind of want to know what it would be like to have that dramatic rushing wind and fire falling and all this stuff. Um, but I'm just glad I got the Holy Ghost, so I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. So couple, I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the parallels of, of, or things that we can note about the timing of all of this happening. So one thing that we can, we can look at, is it significant to us that Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, was crucified on the very day that the, the Jews kept the feast of the Passover? It's also significant that God chose to pour out the Holy Ghost on another Jewish feast day, the Feast of Pentecost. If, you, if you've looked into the word Pentecost at all, it's a Greek word, and it means 50th. 50th, that's it. Um, the day of Pentecost, it, was, it means 50th, and the, it was, refers back to the Feast of Pentecost. And so you've got pa- Passover. Passover is representative of they were um, celebrating or remembering that Jesus, or the, the angel of death, not Jesus, passed over them in Egypt when the angel of death came to, f- to kill the firstborn in Egypt before they were set free. And so they had the blood on the doorpost, they had the, the meal, and, and they were... They were remembering the Feast of Passover is to remember that the angel of death passed over them in Egypt and they were set free. And so that is the reference back to the Passover. And there was a lamb that was slain on that day, um, and Jesus is our Passover lamb. So it mirrors back to an Old Testament moment where they had a, a meal in the midst of some pretty crazy uh, circumstances with with death all around them they were spared because they obeyed God they listened to his word and so you've got Passover and then you've got 50 days and then you've got Pentecost okay when they left the wilderness or left left Egypt to go into the wilderness they traveled to Mount Sinai okay what's significant about Mount Sinai the old covenant my amen corner over here Mr. John thanks sir the old, the old Covenant, the law, was given at Mount Sinai. Now, my study, and I, I was trying to, like, really pinpoint this, because I'm a, I'm a stickler for, like, precision, and, like, I need to see it for myself to know. Um, I read this, and it does, it does match up with timing, um, that it says that rabbis noted that Israelites reached Mount Sinai 50 days after they left, which I find interesting. And if you look at the timing... It talks about the month in there of when they arrived. But if you think about the significance of that, Passover to Mount Sinai, 50 days, and what, what happened at Mount Sinai? The law was given, but what happened to the mountain when God descended upon the mountain before he gave the law? There was thunder, there was lightning, there was a wind, there was fire, right, that descended upon the mountain, and when that happened... Moses went up and the law was given, the covenant. And so parallel that, right? You've got Passover. Jesus was crucified on Passover. Fifty days, you have Pentecost. What happens on Pentecost? The Spirit is poured out and you see fire. You see a rushing mighty wind. You see the law now written in here on our hearts rather than on tablets of stone. 
And so you can see the timing, the similarities, the parallels that you have. It all lines up, and it's all there in the Old Testament. So God, God does not change. God's patterns and principles, they're all over the Bible, all over Scripture. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit to find them, but when you find them, it's like, wow, my faith has just been solidified that much more because I can see, wow, it was there, and it was there, and it was in this story, and it, I can see how that lines up with, how, with Jesus and all this. It's just amazing. And for me, the more I study, the more I learn about this kind of thing, it solidifies. You can't tell me any different. You can't tell me. If it doesn't line up with this Old Testament and what I see here in, 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 the, in the Scripture, I'm sorry, I, I don't believe you. I, I don't believe you. Show it to me in Scripture and I'll believe you. And I have grounds for that. I'm not being, um, well, I am kind of being uh, difficult, but I mean difficult for the right reasons. If I'm going to believe something and base my life off of, of something, I need to see it. And I need to know without a shadow of a doubt it's true. You can't just go off of what other people tell you. You can listen to me, and thankfully you're listening to me, right? I'm teaching and, and sharing some of these things. But if you don't take them, internalize them, read it for yourself, study it out, you're not going to have this assurance that, that you need when things get tough. That's the key. I mean, when you're not challenged on any of this, it's very easy to kind of hide, you know, the areas that you're like, maybe not sure about, maybe, you know, I'm not, I kind of believe that. But when you're, someone looks at you and says, I don't believe it, prove it to me. And you're like, um, uh, I think it says somewhere. And those moments are good, but it pushes you to study. But when you're able to say, you know, look, I know this is real. I know that the Holy Ghost was poured out on the day of Pentecost because you see this. You see how it parallels back to when God gave the first covenant, the fire and the wind and the law and the written on their hearts. And then over here, you've got the law written in our heart, or stone, the law written in our hearts, the fire, the, the wind. And you, I mean, you can pull that out and show that to somebody. It's very convincing. It's very convincing evidence. And so there's more to this than just what's written in the book of Acts. It all refers back to something in the Old Testament. Um, Old Testament is, if you look at your Bible, I'm going to try to pull it up here, if I can get the split. That's the Old Testament. This is the New Testament plus concordance, so it's more like that. If all your beliefs are based off just this, you're missing so much wonderful truth in the Old Testament. You're missing so much. And I know it can be, the New Testament is easier to digest because it's more direct teaching. It's more, inter- they were interpreting, they're interpreting the Old Testament for us and saying, this is how you should act, this is what you should do, which is great. But if you're like me, I will listen and do what you say I should do, but I'll be mu- that much more uh, willing and ready to do it with all I've got if I can see why, if I can understand why you're saying what you're saying and what you're telling me to do, I can see it for myself. Absolutely. So when we look at Paul, when we read Paul's letters and he says, do this, don't do this, or act this way, or don't act this way, but we know where he's coming from with the stories in the Old Testament, and we can say, yeah, I can see that, Paul. Absolutely. Then we are that much more convinced of the truth of the New Testament. Anyways, all right. So we've got the law given on, on Mount Sinai, 50 days. On the Pentecost, the law given, the fire, the wind. And you've got 
Jesus was crucified on Passover. You've got the day of Pentecost, the Spirit being poured out, the rushing mighty wind. You've got the, the, the t- cloven tongues as a fire. It all lines up. So, coming back to the timing of this, talk about Pentecost with the Jews. The Jews, they had feasts throughout the year. And these feasts were designed to help them remember significant things about what had happened to them as a people. God told them, you need to keep these feasts. And so, um, Passover was the beginning of their, their barley harvest, right? Where they would start in their season of barley, would ha- would, um, they would go and they would harvest their barley for 50 days. They get to Pentecost, that's the end of the barley harvest, and then the beginning of their wheat harvest. And so, they were commanded to, at the end of the 50 days, come to God with two loaves of bread and take that, they were given to the priest and the priest would take it and wave it before the Lord as a, as a thank offering at the beginning of the wheat harvest. And so you've got the Passover is the beginning of a harvest, Pentecost is the end of a harvest, but the beginning of a new harvest and the bread was to give thanks in advance for, for what God had given them and what he was going to give them. And so, the beginning, Pentecost was the beginning of a harvest to the Jewish people. So on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, it was marking the end of one harvest, the beginning of another harvest that was yet to come. And those 120 were just a small percentage of the harvest that was about to be poured out, what they were about to reap, and just like those two loaves of bread was a very small percentage of what the Jews were about to go and reap for themselves, those 120 were just the beginning of a harvest that was about to be coming into the church. We see the 3,000, we see the 5,000. And so, again, you see some parallels here of timing and and why for the Jews it was so significant looking back on how Jesus did that. Um, and so God chose this wonderful day to be the birthday of the church, the day of Pentecost. So now when you hear the word Pentecost, when you think about the day of Pentecost, I hope you have some more context around that day and why the timing was not just random. Jesus didn't just pick a random day to, to pour out his spirit. It was very purposeful, very deliberate, and in line with the Old Testament, very much so. So moving along here. So we talked about, we already talked about Mount Sinai. If you read your book, it starts to talk about the visible signs of the Holy Ghost. And so the Holy Ghost being poured out was a new thing. It was a new thing. Up until this point, God's chosen people were the Jews. That, those were his people. That was it. Nobody else. It was the Jews. And so what's happening is when the Holy Ghost gets poured out and you see it being poured out for the Jews first... Um, God is, is, he pours out his spirit to his special people, but what they didn't realize yet was it was about to be something that would be opened up to the whole world, and they, they were no longer just his chosen people. They were the vehicles by which God would use to reach the whole world, but they were not the exclusive people anymore. Um, and so we see the beginning of this, of this, um, will we begin to see the beginning of the spiritual, us being spiritual Jews and receiving 
the Spirit. We're all one family. We're all one church. We're all one body. We're not separated. We're one. But that wasn't as, it, it wasn't as uh, obvious yet. It wasn't quite clear to them yet that that was about to happen. Um, so let's, let's look at a couple examples of speaking in tongues and when it happened, who it happened to. Um, and we can look at some of the evidence for this crazy, wonderful thing called speaking in tongues that happens when you get the Holy Ghost. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so, there's four examples we're going to look at. Um, and the first one is, we've been talking about the day of Pentecost. So, let me flip back, flip back over to Acts here. So, Acts chapter 2, we started to read in verse 4, says that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, we see this miracle of tongues poured out upon these people. So, what, what were significant about this experience? Well, first off, when you hear somebody speaking in tongues, what you'll notice is it's their mouth moving, Right? sound coming out of their mouth. It's, it's our tongue speaking out wonderful works of God. So when the Holy Ghost is poured out upon us, it's our yielding to that that allows us to speak in tongues. And so when they were, in the day of Pentecost, when they were waiting for God, they were open to God. And when they became open to God, when God poured out His Spirit, they were able to speak in tongues. But it was their mouth, their lips, their tongue. Like, it was their experience and so when it happened, they began to speak languages, right? Languages, and the reason that we, one of the reasons we know they were languages was the fact that there were people around that heard them speaking their language. They didn't know their language, and they knew they didn't know their language because of where they came from. You have Jews. Jews came to Jerusalem from all over the world. I mean, they were scattered all over the place. And so at this time of year, you've got a massive number of people. They're all Jews, but they're coming from all different parts of the world, speaking different languages. And so there's these people, these Galileans, who are the region of Galilee, that's, they're not from. So that's like if I just randomly busted out in Chinese, having never heard Chinese or spoken Chinese, you'd be like, what in the world? I mean, I'd be a little shocked, too. And you spoke Chinese. You're like, I know he doesn't know it. I know he hasn't learned it. What is this all about? I mean, it would get my attention. I'm just telling you. And so the fact that we see the Holy Ghost poured out, they're speaking tongues. These people are like, they're speaking our language. We can know they were language. They were speaking as if um, they knew the language. And so I actually want to point out one of the, one of the um, argument defenses that is in your book. And I would encourage you to go back and read this. It's a really interesting section. Um, but one of the things that people will say was that their speaking in tongues was the gift of tongues, right? That Paul talks about um, in 1 Corinthians. However, one of the things the author points out, I thought this was very interesting, um, about speaking in tongues versus the gift of tongues. He says, while there were similarities here, the laws governing the operation of the gift of tongues would have been broken if this were indeed what it was. And so... 1 Corinthians 14, there's a couple things that Paul shares as the laws of this gift. 
Um, the gift of tongues is not to be exercised unless someone interprets what is being said. No one was there interpreting that day everything that they were saying. They weren't. So that would have broken law, number one. Number two, only one person should speak at a time. There should never be more than three messages in tongues in one meeting. you got 120 going on at the same time with no interpretation and nobody saying, oh, nope, you three first, then you three, then you three, which is proper when, when the gift of tongues is at work in a public place. Those are the laws that Paul says you need to operate by those laws because otherwise there's mass confusion because the purpose of the gift of tongues is different than, the, than speaking in tongues. Very, very different. And so if, if that was really the gift of tongues, they would have already been breaking every law of the laws of the gift of tongues that Paul said. So either Paul was not telling the truth or it was something different than the gift of tongues. I thought that was really interesting and, and something that, an angle that I hadn't thought about before, but it's very true. It's very true. So they were speaking in tongues. It was not the gift of tongues. It was, it was the individual outpouring of the Spirit that we get when we receive the Holy Ghost. The other thing that you'll take note of is that the Holy Ghost is a rest. The Holy Ghost brings us rest in our spirit in our heart. Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? What does Isaiah say in um, Isaiah 28 and 12, or 11 and 12? He says, for with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the rest, wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. And so Jesus says, come to me, I'll give you rest. And Isaiah says, this is the rest, Stammering lips in another tongue. And so when you receive the Holy Ghost, you not only get access to something where you can you speak in a funny language, but you get rest for your soul. You can get access to something that gives you a refreshing and a rest, rivers of living water that flow out of you that give you a, a rest and a refreshing that you cannot get without the Holy Ghost. You cannot. And it is amazing. If you've ever experienced that for yourself, it is amazing to be just absolutely physically exhausted, mentally worn out, just wiped out and spend 10 minutes speaking in tongues and all of a sudden you feel brand new. That's not natural. That does not happen naturally. And so the Holy Ghost is our rest and it is meant to be our rest and how we rest. So for them, they received not only a a funny language, but they also received power. They received the spirit that gives us rest. And Isaiah prophesied it hundreds of years beforehand. He says, this is the rest, stammering lips in another tongue. So we see this happen on the day of Pentecost. And this opens, you'll, you'll notice in your book, it talks about, um, you know, this, this, this miracle drew mixed reactions from the crowd. Anything like this does. Anything miraculous will always get people who doubt who are skeptical, people that are just amazed and absolutely believe it and thinks it's the, most, the greatest thing in the world. And so when you get the Holy Ghost and people see it or you tell them about it, you're going to have people that don't believe you. I don't know about that. That sounds kind of crazy. And people that are like, wow, that's amazing. Absolutely. Can I, can I you know, tell me about it? You're always going to get mixed reactions when there's a miracle like this. Um, and so for them, it was no different. They're walking around saying, did you hear what just happened to us? That was the most amazing. People are like, uh-huh. 
you're drunk. You had a little bit too much, didn't you? And then there were people that were, you know, the three, part of the 3,000 that were like, oh, that's amazing. We want some of that too. And so whenever God does something miraculous, you're always going to have that. And you just kind of, kind of deal with it and realize it's going to happen and, and just understand that what happened to you is real whether or not someone else affirms it or not. Because the Bible affirms it. If you receive the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues, that's all the affirmation you need. People don't need to tell you that's true or real. You can real read it in here and see, well, in the book of Acts, they spoke in tongues. I'm doing just what they did. Right? And this is Bible. That's, I mean, this is, what you, this is Bible. And so that's all the affirmation you need. So if people try to make you question or doubt that, and you can say, no, I, I've, I've heard it, I've seen it, I have the evidence, and I see it in the Bible, you can't, you can't tell me any different. That's what you've got to have in here. And that's with any, any, any part of this book, but especially with your experiences with God, you need to know for yourself, no, I know what I felt. I know what I heard. I know what I said because I see it here too, and I can have confidence, and I'm standing on, on this word. So always, always, always find your confidence in God and his word. All right. A few more minutes here. We'll, we'll point out a couple other things. So we've got Peter preaching to the Jews, right? And we'll talk more about this. The Spirit's poured out and they speak with tongues. Well, we've got, let's talk about Samaria, all right? So Philip goes down to the city of Samaria and preaches Christ to the people, right? So he, he leaves Jerusalem, goes to Samaria, and I don't have time to get into the significance of Samaria and what, how, how big of a deal this really was for Philip to go here and to preach to them a Jewish experience to this point. It had just been a Jewish experience. They did not like each other. So what happened there? You have healing, miraculous healings, physical healings. You've got demons being cast out. You've got great joy, but no Holy Ghost yet. You've got baptisms going on. Philip baptized them in the name of Jesus, including a man named Simon who had practiced witchcraft. And so the word gets back to Jerusalem. Hey, something's going on in Samaria. You know, we need to go check it out. They send Peter and John. And so when they come down there, remember, Peter's got the keys. John was with him, but Peter has the keys. Samaria had the word. They had the joy. They had the miracles. They had the signs. They even had baptism. But they had not yet received the Holy Ghost. And so Peter and John, when they come, they lay their hands on them, and they receive the Holy Ghost. Now, the four instances that we're talking about, this is the only one where speaking in tongues is not specifically mentioned as happening when they laid their hands on them. However, it does not take but a close, a decent look at the Scriptures and to understand it, it did happen, uh, whether it's specifically mentioned or not, because what happens when they laid their hand on him, them? Peter and John laid their hands on them. They received the Holy Ghost. In Simon, verse 18 of Acts chapter 8, it says, When Simon saw that through the... Saul, that through the laying on of hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay my hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. How do you know they got the Holy Ghost? He saw them lay their hands on him. I mean, Philip was laying hands on people, I'm sure, to heal them. And so how how did he know that these people, you laid your hands on them and they got the Holy Ghost, and that's different than what I saw Philip do? What's the difference? Speaking in tongues. 
something he had not seen yet. He saw the healings. He saw the miracles. He saw demons being cast out. He saw people get baptized. But this was different. He's like, I haven't seen this before. I want that power. Whatever it is you just did, I want that power. Because what he saw was the miracle of speaking in tongues when they received the Holy Ghost. It was so different, so miraculous, so different than anything he'd ever seen before, even as a sorcerer and and doing witchcraft. He couldn't imitate that, speaking in tongues, because it is that that unique, that powerful, and that that, um, it caught his attention. He realized, I want this power. And so while it doesn't say they laid their hands on them and they spoke with tongues, it's very obvious if you just stop and think about it for a minute, Simon saw something that shocked him that he hadn't seen before, and he wanted it so bad he was offering money to get that power. He knew they got the Holy Ghost because they spoke in tongues when they laid their hands on them. If you look at Cornelius, and I don't have time to go into each one of these, but if you look at Cornelius, um, this was the outpouring to the Gentiles. Peter's opening the keys, right? Peter and Cornelius. He preaches to Cornelius. His household's filled with the Spirit. So now you've got the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles that have all received the Holy Ghost. And, And God had to get Peter's attention very dramatically for him to be willing to do this. Because up to this point, he's like, this is for Jews. And like, Samaritans maybe, but like, Gentiles, Lord, those people, like, we're not supposed to fellowship with those people. We're not supposed to be connected to those people. God's like, don't you call common what I've called clean. Don't you, don't you look at them and say, they're not worthy of what I want to give them. You do what I tell you. Because Peter had not yet realized, even though all of this buildup with his, Jesus' teaching and what he's seen, he didn't realize yet that this was bigger than, than just the Jews and just Samaritans. It was for the world. And so Cornelius, the experience of Cornelius' household is so significant because it opens the door, unlocks the door that allowed the Gentiles to receive the Holy Ghost. And unless you're Jewish here, I'm not one. I'm thankful for that door being opened because that allowed me to get the Holy Ghost, right? So I, I, I pay attention to that. Thank you. That's, thank you for opening that door, Lord. I, I, I'm thankful for that. So, and it, it records in there, they heard them speak with tongues. And then in Acts chapter 19, um, the Ephesian believers, it says when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they began to speak with tongues and prophesied. So of the four specific accounts that we see, three of them mention speaking in tongues, and the fourth one is very much implied. It's pretty strong evidence for the evidence of the Spirit of God in filling us, us receiving the Holy Ghost, is speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. And there's all sorts of other things you can point back to that Jesus said and the prophets talked about. Um, that can prove that. And so it's not just a funny little language that, that sounds, sounds weird, but it's an experience and an outpouring of the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ himself coming to live inside of us, that we can have the power to live out what he commanded us to do in his word. They couldn't do it in the Old Testament. They couldn't, no matter how hard they tried. We've got two-thirds of our Bible proving that they could not keep the law. And so now that the law is no longer written on stone but written in our heart, he not only gives us what to do, he gives us the desire to do it, and he gives us the ability to do it, all through his spirit. So when we receive the Holy Ghost and we speak in tongues as the evidence or the, 
the outward manifestation that yes, this happened, we then can walk in newness of life. We can walk in the Spirit of God like we have not been able to. We can't without Him. And so next week, we'll kind of talk a little bit about Peter's message, which is also a great, great topic because it, if you really listen to his message and, and read through it without skipping to get to 238, um, there's a lot of really powerful stuff in there. And we'll talk a little bit about his message um, next week. But there's more to this than just Acts chapter 2. There's more to our faith. There's more to our, our belief and our doctrine than just Acts chapter 2. And I hope this has kind of opened your eyes to that a little bit and that you're intrigued enough to go and study. And you've got a book, Church History 1. If you haven't gotten it, grow table in the back. You can get it. Um, where it has all the scriptures and the content from this stuff. So if you want my notes, you can go buy them. Put them in a book. No. So, all right. Praise God.